Well, in uh, preparation for this service, I began by searching the Rolodex of my heart in pursuit of a message that I felt would capture the celebration and thanksgiving that best mirrored how my life has been impacted and imprinted by the gospel of grace or by God's grace. I originally named this message the economy of God's grace. And then as I began to meditate on that name, I thought, no, that won't do. It's too cold. <laughs> it's too mechanical. It lacks passion. Grace to me is so much more expressive. Grace to me is so much more robust. Grace remains faithful when economies fail. You see, in an economy, goods are bought and sold and traded. But in God's kingdom, grace can never be bought. It can never be sold. It can never be worked for. It can never be earned. And it can never be traded. And on those occasions where we seem like we trade away God's grace, I want to remind you what the prophet said when he said, Great is thy faithfulness. He said, thy mercies or thy graces are new every single day. So then how do we receive this grace? Isaiah was moved by the Spirit when he obviously wrote his book. I don't know if he even knew what he was saying, but in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. He said, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Now let's stop here for just a second. This is an amazing scripture. And I've seen this before and I've meditated on this before. And it's really brought a lot of gladness to my heart. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Do you hear his cry? Do you hear the invitation that is going out? He's not talking just in the natural. He's talking as a spiritual man of God. And he says, come to the waters. And then he says something really strange. And he says, and you who have no money, he says, come buy and eat. Buy wine, the first thing he says. Wine speaks of celebration. And I want you to know something, from the time my feet hit the floor in the morning, I begin celebrating the goodness of God. I begin to celebrate the grace of God. I begin to celebrate His love. And I begin to celebrate all the wonderful attributes of my Father. Until the time I'm tucked away in bed at night. Well, Valerie doesn't really tuck me. <laughs> Until the time I slip between the covers at night. I celebrate the goodness of God. People mistake my energy. I, I'm telling you, if you don't know me and uh, you would see me for the first time, you think, man, that energy can't be real. That energy is real. I want to tell you, what you see in here is what you see everywhere I go. I have this kind of energy because I've got a real living spirit of God working on the inside of me. And I have this revelation of his love, this revelation of his goodness, this revelation of his grace. So he says, come by wine, which speaks of celebration. But then he says, and milk. Milk speaks of nourishment. What do you give a baby when he's born? You nurse that baby with milk. Now, a lot of people have a hard time trying to figure out what the difference is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
How do I separate Old Covenant from New Covenant? I'll tell you how you separate it. Everything on the left side of the cross is Old Covenant. And everything on the right side of the cross is New Covenant. I spend probably more time in the Old Testament than I do the New Testament, but I have a right perspective. I know what belongs to me, and I know what doesn't belong to me, because how the covenant had changed when Jesus hung on the cross. Continue, and here's what Isaiah says. He says, listen. He says it twice. Listen. He says, listen to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Oh, that's a strange word, isn't it? Fatness. That word fatness in the Hebrew literally means abundance. It means abundance. He's saying, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And that's the way you must see grace. Grace is not just some little thing. Grace is abundant. And he said, let your soul delight itself in fatness or abundance. And then he says, give ear and come to me. Listen, listen, that you may live. Whoa, look at that. I will make an everlasting covenant, is what he says, with you, my faithful love promised to David. Oh, I love that. Listen to what he's saying. Did you notice that in verse number one, he began with an invitation of grace. Come, come without money. <laughs> That's an invitation of grace. Verse one is an invitation of grace, and verse three ends with an everlasting covenant. That is the nature of grace. It will pull a man out of the sewer clean him up, and then seal him with an everlasting covenant so that he can never get dirty again in the eyes of God. That's what grace will do. The prophet Isaiah's appeal to the hungry and the thirsty to come to the table by grace alone is one of the most transparent gospel invitations that you can find in the Old Testament. It's a gospel invitation. He is pointing to none other than Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and the fountain of living waters. The one that becomes ours without money. The one that becomes ours without cost. The one that becomes ours without labor. The one that satisfies our hearts in a celebration of wine and milk and bread. The one that nourishes our soul with the fatness of grace. The one that has made an everlasting covenant with his faithful love. And the one that has given us ears to hear the incessant invitation to come to the table by grace alone. I want you to know something. It's not just for the sinner. It's for the saint too. Keep coming to the table. It's always by grace. Grace is at the core of daddy's heart and his grace consistently reminds us of the celebration and the nourishment that is found in Jesus Christ alone. So I originally was going to name this message the economy of God's grace, and I changed the message to the wealth of God's grace. And although I thought wealth sounded richer and more fulfilling than the word economy, neither economy nor wealth seem to communicate the fatness of grace, the abundance of grace which we possess. But as I continued to meditate on the scriptures as well as the name of the message, there was an image that began to emerge in my soul. You see, my daddy didn't just give me a word, he gave me a word picture because that's the way he likes to communicate to me. The image that daddy planted in my heart was the image of the cornucopia. Now when that image became visible in my heart, the first thing my heart did was it grew quiet as I meditated on that. 
But as that picture began to develop, my heart erupted with celebration and thanksgiving. The cornucopia had captured through a word picture the way daddy's grace makes me feel inside and out. You see, the cornucopia speaks of celebration. The cornucopia speaks of thanksgiving. It speaks of provision. It speaks of beauty. It speaks of nourishment. But most of all, the cornucopia speaks of abundance. Look how abundant that is. Everything is running over. Jesus echoed that declaration of abundance in John chapter 10 and verse 10 when he said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly or that fatness of grace that he's talking about. Friends, let me tell you something. There are a few objects that I've ever seen in life that are more pleasing to the eye than that of the cornucopia. Let me tell you where that word comes from. It comes from the Latin word cornucopia, or they would say cornucopia. That's how they would say it in Latin. But look at what cornucopia means. Cornu means horn, copia means plenty. Therefore, the cornucopia is referred to as the horn of plenty. The cornucopia overflows with produce and flowers and grains and nuts. From the rainbow of colors to the variety of nutrition, the cornucopia is bursting forth with promise, with the promise of plenty. And so it is with grace, and so it is with Jesus Christ. He speaks of celebration. He speaks of thanksgiving. He speaks of provision. He speaks of beauty. He speaks of nourishment, but most of all, he speaks of an everlasting and abundant life. That's because he is the horn of plenty. He is the horn of abundance, amen? So I want to minister a few minutes longer through a message I'm calling the cornucopia of God's grace. And what I want you to see through the message is this. God is for us even in the midst of our most colorless moments. David said these words in Psalm chapter 18 and verse 2. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. It's just like he could go on forever. And my God and my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, look at those words, and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. David had a revelation of God's goodness and God's love and God's grace under an old covenant Sometimes I think his revelation was deeper and greater than the revelation many believers have under the new covenant. Now, why is that? Why did David have such a revelation of God's love? Why did he have such a revelation of how good God was? Psalm 56 in verse 9, he said, When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. I want you to take those words and I want you to lock them up in the treasure chest of your heart this morning and say, God is for me. We sang about it on the last song. We sang, say the word that sets my heart on what you've done and who you are. God, you're for me. Every hard and heavy step, I will see your faithfulness. God, you are for me, for me. I am fearless in your presence. You're all around me, all around me. In my weakness, you are strongest. You surround me. Well, what a powerful song coming right out of Psalm chapter 56 and verse 9 that in our darkest times, we can say, God, you're for me. I know you're for me. No matter what's going on in life, you are for me. 
The cornucopia of today is typically made from wicker or vines that have been twisted together or weaved together into that cone shape that we've come to realize. But the original cornucopias were made from the horns of rams. They were made from the horns of rams. Now the reason I find this interesting is because the first mention of a horn in the Bible is the horn of a ram. The reason it's one of my favorite narratives is because it reveals the heart of the Father toward all humanity. You and I are in this story, by the way, and our outcome is an outcome of celebration and thanksgiving and provision and spiritual nutrition and abundant life. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. This is the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And here's what it says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. That kind of cracks me up. Abraham had two sons, but God says, take your only son. And then God has to kind of keep refining this so Abraham doesn't make a mistake here. Take your son. Okay, I've got two sons. Ishmael was first, then Isaac. And then he says, wait a minute, your only son, which I think Abraham got. It was, that means the son that was born by promise. The one you love. And in case you missed all of that, it's Isaac. I want you to go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, that towering mountain of Moriah. I wonder what was going on in his heart. He's got very clear instructions by God. I guarantee he hasn't shared them with Isaac yet. He hadn't told anybody. I've had things in life that made my heart just tremble. Sometimes out of excitement, sometimes out of fear. I don't know how I would have dealt with that, to be honest with you, as a daddy. I don't understand that kind of love. So they're standing facing that mountain. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. I want you to know something. Details in the Bible are very important. Why do we need to know all this stuff? You'll see in just a moment. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father! <laughs> Yes, my son. I'll bet you Abraham had been waiting for that. When's my boy going to get inquisitive? There's still something missing in this recipe, and that's the sacrifice. Finally, Isaac says, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, what a powerful thing to say. 
I mean, you talk about the power of your words. I think under his breath, he was saying, Daddy, you better come through on this one. I told the servants before we came up the mountain, you guys just wait here with the donkey. We'll be back. I don't want to bring my son down in pieces. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. In this picture so far, you see an incredible devotion, an incredible desire to obey God's voice. But the shining star seems to be Isaac, who allows his daddy to do this. I mean, when I used to get a belt from my daddy when I was young, I wouldn't stand in one place and get a belt. I'd be hopping all over the place as he would whip me with that belt. I wouldn't stay in one place. And Isaac allows his daddy to tie himself to the altar. What kind of love does a son have for a father to allow that to happen? I want to tell you something. Abraham was no doubt very, very good to Isaac. Very good to Isaac. And Isaac had seen the character of his daddy. Isaac had seen the heart of his father and the devotion his father had for God. And though he didn't understand what his daddy was doing, he allowed it. He permitted it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Try to picture yourself in that story. I mean, the sweat is just pouring down your forehead. And you're doing exactly what God told you to do. And the knife is up here. It's getting ready to get plunged into the beating heart of your son Isaac. And he hears the angel say, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. Remember, I told you the first time it came up in the Bible, the word horn was right here in this most awesome story. The story that you and I are in. And I believe God really wanted us to see this story so that we could celebrate his goodness. We can celebrate him as not only father, but one who rescues us, one who pardons us. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son, Isaac. Now, there are a lot of characters in this story, and there are a lot of components. I can't touch on all of them, though I would like to. But let me touch on a few of them so that you can see the covenant that we have. Abraham, first of all, is a picture of God. Abraham is the father in this story, and Abraham is a picture of God himself. We often think that Isaac is a picture of Jesus, but Isaac is a picture of humanity. Isaac is a picture of you, and Isaac is a picture of me. We see the fire. The fire is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present. We see the wood, which represents the cross, the very wood that Abraham put on his son Isaac's back represents the cross. 
Do you see this so far? You've got the Father, you've got the cross, you've got all humanity, and you've got the Holy Spirit. The knife, the knife simply represents the sacrifice, that there would be a sacrifice. Oh yeah, Isaac was spared, but there was still going to be a sacrifice. Mount Moriah represents Mount Calvary, the very hill that Jesus walked up to be sacrificed on. That's what it represents. The thicket represents the crown of thorns. That's the thicket that the ram, a ram is just an adult sheep. That's all it is, a male sheep. It was stuck in the thickets, and Jesus would ultimately come and wear that crown of thorns. The ram, friends, is none other than Jesus himself. It's a type and shadow of Jesus being caught in the thickets, wearing the crown of thorns. And I believe the two servants represent man's choice. I'm reminded that when Jesus hung on the cross, there were two men that were hanging with him. Two men also at the hill of Mount Moriah when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Those two servants that are at the bottom of the hill represent man's choice. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. One thief got the revelation and he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and he said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I mean, this is just a Snapchat that we went through compared to the three-day journey to Mount Moriah and the anguish and the torment that Abraham probably was going through. The love that was flowing from Isaac's heart toward his daddy as he allowed him to be bound. You see the Father, you see the Holy Spirit, you see Jesus wearing the crown of thorns, you see him on the cross in this picture. But let's not forget those two men at the bottom of the hill. Those two men, I believe, represent man's choice. Friends, several thousand years ago, through a type and shadow, the cornucopia of God's grace walked up the backside of Mount Moriah in the form of a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. This is a picture of Jesus Christ, the one who would become the substitutionary death for you and for me, and for anybody that would place their trust in Him. You couldn't make this fit if you tried. You couldn't make all these components make sense. This would be like some weird jigsaw puzzle putting it together. It makes sense because we can look back now and we can see, we can see through this type and shadow that this is our covenant. This is what Daddy did for us. Then 2,000 years ago, Jesus came as the fulfillment of Mount Moriah's type and shadow on a hill called Mount Calvary, our Jesus hung on a cross so that through grace we might have the promise of abundant life, that through grace we might be able to live an eternal life of nourishment and thanksgiving. Through grace we might be able to say, God is for me. God is for me. I want you to know something before he formed and laid the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God, the Bible says, was slain. And so God was for us even back then. You didn't have to be born. You were already born in the heart of God. And he was for you then. And he already provided that ram to come up the backside of the mountain. He already put things in place. He provided for the Lamb of God to come and hang on a no rugged cross. I want you to know something. Jesus was not only nailed to the cross, but grace and truth were also nailed to the cross. You see, you cannot separate grace and truth from Jesus. Can't do it. 
We see that truth in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, look at that, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. <laughs> See, he's before me and he is for me. And then he says, And of his fullness, or out of his abundance is what it's saying, because of his fullness, or from the cornucopia of God's grace, have all we received, and grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I'm telling you that grace and truth was nailed to an old rugged cross. But not only was Jesus and grace and truth nailed to an old rugged cross, so was the written code. The written code was nailed to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, look at those words, having canceled the written code with this regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he has taken it. What is it? The written code. He has taken it away, nailing it to his cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Grace and truth was nailed to the cross. And the written code was nailed to the cross. So when the enemy or anybody speaks into your heart about this written code, you tell them, no, the written code was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I'm passionate about this, I'm telling you. Because I watch too many people walking in hurt and disillusion because they don't realize that the written code was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the cross. Not only was Jesus and grace and truth and the written code nailed to the cross, that old rugged cross, but the curse, the curse was also nailed to the cross. We find this truth in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone, look at those words, that hangeth on a tree or hangeth on a cross. That the blessing of Abraham, now look at this, pointing all the way back to Abraham, to that covenant Abraham had with God, even as he went to sacrifice Isaac, he pointed them back there. He said that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I'm going to tell you what thrills me even beyond words is the overlooked truth that you and I were also nailed to his cross. See, you don't hear that preached too often. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 nails it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Where did you get nailed to? You got crucified with Christ. While he hung on that cross, while he was stuck in that thicket, I want you to know something. He had already put you inside of him, and you were nailed to the cross with Christ. Look how that verse ends, and gave himself for me. <laughs> and gave himself for me. 
What was it again that David said in Psalm 56, verse 9? He said, when I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Why is he for me? Because he put me on the cross with him and gave himself for me. Okay? He's not denying that he's going to walk through times in life that are dark and times that are painful. I'm not even going to concentrate on that and be concerned about that. I want to concentrate on the truth that you're for me. You know, I'll tell you what, that alone will set you free right there. Every situation you go through, I don't care if it's a hangnail or what it is in life from the least to the greatest, I want you to remember God is for me. And start saying that and declaring that. Let that be your declaration that's rising out of your heart that no matter what I'm going through, yes, my God is for me in the midst of this. Let that be your declaration. When the Roman soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side, if you remember the story, they broke the legs of the two thieves next to Jesus, but when it came to Jesus, he had already died, he had already given up the ghost, so they didn't need to break his legs, but the Roman thrust his spear into Jesus' side as he hung on the cross. And the Bible declares that there was a sudden flow of blood and water. I believe that the water represented his humanity and the blood represented his divinity. And they were both coming at the same time. We see this truth in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now watch what it says. He did not come by water alone or water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. I love that. I tell you what, if they ever get out of agreement, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. You can't hardly get three people to agree on something like that. But I want you to know something. The spirit, the blood, and the water are always in agreement. What are they in agreement about? That Jesus was and is and will forever be the cornucopia of God's grace, full of celebration, full of thanksgiving, full of provision, full of spiritual nutrition, full of beauty, full of the abundance of everlasting life, and full of grace and truth. I can only imagine when the Father saw His Son Jesus hanging on the cross, that He thought, Behold, there hangs the cornucopia of my grace. One of the stories that most impacted my life coming up in Christianity was the story of a man who had a sick child, a sick young boy. And that daddy was a very spiritual man. And that daddy prayed, and that daddy fasted, and that daddy took communion, and that daddy quoted scripture, and that daddy stood in faith, and that daddy believed with all of his heart that God is going to heal my boy. Yet that boy grew sicker and sicker and sicker until he finally stopped breathing. I want to tell you something. That man was so mad at God, he refused to read the scriptures. He quit praying. He quit going to church. But one thing I know about God is when he puts a seed on the inside of you, the Bible says that seed remains. You can just go ahead and have your party for a little while. Go ahead and have your fit for a little while. Go ahead. God is patient. He'll wait. And one day, he just couldn't stand it anymore, and he, he went for a little walk. And he began to say to God, God, I stood in faith. I prayed. I quoted scripture. I fasted. 
I took communion. I believed with all my heart that my son was going to live. And my son died. And then he asked the poignant question, where were you when my son died? That man said, I heard God whisper out of heaven, I was in the same place as I was when my son died. When the cornucopia of God's grace was on the cross, he was in the same place as he was when that man's son died. I've told you before, I lost a son. I was two months old in Jesus. I mean two months. I gave my heart to Jesus in August of 95 and in October of 95, one of my sons died. I was devastated. Seven months later, I would go through a divorce. A year and a half later, I'd go through a bankruptcy. I know what it's like to walk in darkness. I know what it's like to be devastated. You say, how'd you get through all that stuff? I'll tell you how I got through all that stuff because in all of those issues of life, I knew that my God was for me. That's how I got through it all. These were black and white times in my life, colorless moments. It was as though the enemy and the circumstances of life tried to hide the cornucopia of God's grace from me. But it was in those times that I still believed. God is for me. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Oversupplied riches. In Him we have redemption. Don't you ever forget that. I've been redeemed. I've been bought out of slavery. I bear that slave name no more. He has given me a new name. He has written that new name in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing can expunge my name from that book. He's for me. Jesus came to turn our black and white worlds into living color. He came to turn our cisterns into living water and our Kool-Aid into new wine. Jesus came to turn our mundane lives into life more abundant. He ultimately came to capture our hearts with daddy's love and daddy's grace and daddy's truth. The same love, the same grace, and the same truth that represented us in the courtroom when the verdict of absolute innocence was issued. Oh yeah, there was a courtroom and there was a trial. And all of humanity was on that trial. Let me just kind of use a liberty here, okay? God was presiding as judge, and behind him on the wall hung the portrait of his son Jesus on the cross. And just as the gavel was about to fall with the guilty verdict for man, the jury, which consisted of the blood and the water and the spirit, rose and said, we want to testify you haven't heard from us yet. We've reached an agreement. Then they pointed to Jesus and declared, Behold, the ram that was caught by his horns in the thicket. He is sufficient grace. He is a sufficient sacrifice. The lamb is none other than Jesus, the son of the living God. The benefit of Jesus being made flesh and dwelling among us is so that through beholding his glory you and I would become the beneficiaries of grace and truth you see you cannot have a beneficiary without a benefactor 
Okay? Somebody has to do the giving, right? Somebody has to receive, somebody has to give. And when we look at the character and the heart of our benefactor, Jesus Christ, it becomes easy to see the cornucopia of God's grace. You see, we spend too much time looking at our character and not enough time looking at his. His character is full of grace and truth. Under the law, it's all black and white. There is no color. There are no gray areas. It is black and white. As a child, I remember watching The Wizard of Oz. They would talk about the yellow brick road, and they would talk about the ruby slippers, yet neither revealed their true identity through our black and white television. They'd say, follow the yellow brick road. I'd say, where's the yellow brick road? Look at the ruby slippers. Ruby slippers. They don't look ruby to me. It doesn't look yellow to me. But later in the years when I saw that movie on a color television, it was as though I was watching it for the first time. Like the cornucopia, it was robust with colors and full of life and full of promise. So it is with the revelation of the finished work of grace. Grace is robust. Grace is abundant. Grace bursts forth with life and goodness and all the promises of God. I've heard it said many times by many people. They say, when I came into the revelation of God's grace, they say, it was like I was being born again, again. It was like it was happening all over for me. Friends, I want to tell you something. Getting the revelation of grace is like going from black and white television to color television. See, I always thought they just filmed it in black and white because it was made so long ago, 1939. No, it was made in 1939, but I want you to know something. They used Technicolor. It's just that the receiver, the receiver wasn't picking it up in color because there was something wrong with the receiver. There wasn't anything wrong with the transmitter. So it is with the cornucopia of God's extravagant grace. It's always been in living color, <laughs> but we just have not been able to see it through our black and white lenses of the Old Covenant and Mosaic law. It was that same black and white lens that was being worn by the Samaritan woman the day that Jesus visited her of all places at the well. My closing scriptures. John chapter 4 verses 1 through 14. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. When he says he had to go through Samaria, it just means being prompted by the Father. He had to go through Samaria. The Pharisees didn't go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. They would walk all the way around Samaria to get up into Galilee. It would take them one to two days of extra walking just to walk around Samaria. But the Bible says Jesus had to go through there. Why? Because he didn't want to waste time. No, because there was an appointment that the Father had set up for him. That's why he had to go through there. So I said he wasn't going to be intimidated. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkah, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, look at that, and he would have given you living water. In other words, you would have dropped your bucket and exchanged it for the cornucopia of God's grace for a never-ending supply of living water. The woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Religion! You know what? I never think about Jacob throughout my day, unless I'm preaching about him. I don't go, man, Jacob, oh, Jacob. Mmm, Jacob. No, Jesus! She's stuck in religious mode here, though. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them, in them, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus was skillfully doing something here. She brought up Jacob. He said, hey, okay. Jesus was skillfully pointing her all the way back to the water that Isaiah spoke of. A water that you don't have to labor for. A water that comes without cost. A water that comes without money. A well that never runs dry. A well that has made an everlasting covenant with his faithful love. Well, as the story goes, the woman at the well did indeed exchange her black and white world for living color. She did something that women didn't do in those days, and that is she abandoned her water jar and ran back into town. You never, you never let go of your water jar because someone else would come along and steal it. You see, the water jar represents religion. And she had just run into the author of life. And he promised I'd put a well on the inside of you that you wouldn't have to come back to this well and drink anymore. And she believed him. And she thought, well, I won't be needing this water pot anymore. And she abandoned her water pot. She abandoned her religion. What did she abandon it for? She abandoned her water jar for the cornucopia of God's grace. Daddy, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for this grace. This grace that is robust with color. This grace that takes a black and white world and turns it into living color for us. This grace that takes a cistern that we've dug our own selves and it says, I'm going to put the well on the inside of you. This grace that keeps supplying, this grace that just gives us abundant life, this grace that is referred to as the fatness, the fatness or the abundance of your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness. I want to thank you, Father, that we're talking about lives that were changed back then, stories that still impact us today. Abraham's story, and the woman at the well. Her name is not even named, but yet here thousands of years later, 
we are still reading about her. Why? Because of the beauty of transformation that took place that day when she ran into the cornucopia of God's grace. Amen.